in our journey in the letter of James. Now, we're, I'm going to recap a little bit some of the stuff you've known. Um, if it hasn't already been covered before, then open your ears and listen carefully. J- James was, the, was a younger half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't the only half-brother. Uh, half-brother because his mother is Mary, Jesus' mother. His father is Joseph. And James was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, eventually. And we're running through this letter of James under this title, No Nonsense Christianity. And we're looking specifically this week at the guidance that James's letter provides with regard to the use of Scripture. How we might be blessed by our use of the Bible. And I notice particularly in the last couple of songs, there's continuous reference in the worship songs we sing about the, the power of the Word of God. Now, James's letter was written about A.D. 50. Now, that's about uh, 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And it's, it's important sometimes when you're thinking about letters and trying to read them, is to understand the context in which they were written. So, a good question that I wanted to ask, and I think it's a good question to explore, is, well, what's been going on in the 20 years since Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven? What's been happening? Well, we know at the birth of the church on the first Pentecost Sunday, which was 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, and in the few weeks that immediately followed it, the number of believers in Jesus Christ grew rapidly. There were hundreds, if not Thousands of people very quickly joined the church, if you like, joined the movement. And it was very unsettling for the leaders in Jerusalem. They didn't like it at all. And within a few months, the stoning of Stephen had taken place, and he was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. And then a purge of this new religion, this new way, began in the city. Saul played a leading part in that. He he perhaps wasn't the only person, but he certainly was an important player. And the net result of that was that many hundreds, thousands maybe, of these new converts fled. And they scattered out across the neighbouring countries. Move on three years to about AD 34. Now Saul is on his way to Damascus. And why is he going to Damascus? He's going to continue the same work that he'd been doing in Jerusalem. He's still hot on the heels of these people who follow this new way. Heretics, I suppose, he would regard them as. On that journey, he encounters Christ for himself, as Brian remarked. And, interestingly, he is reborn three days later. His eyes are opened and he is reborn as a fervent and passionate believer in the gospel and in Christ. And he has to be smuggled out of Damascus in fear of his life, and then he goes sort of underground for a while. We don't really know where he is. He's maybe in the wilderness. He's maybe keeping his head down. But eventually, he makes his way to Tarsus, which is where he came from. And he settles down there as a, member of the, as a leading member of the church in Tarsus. And he's there for several years. Go on a bit more. AD 42 now. And the leaders of the church in Jerusalem get to hear about what's been going on in Antioch, in Syria, up the coast. They hear that quite a lot of non-Jews are starting to believe the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
And so they send a guy called Barnabas, will you go up to Antioch and see what the heck is going on up there, please, and come back and report. So he goes and does what he's told. When he gets there, he's there for quite a while, getting to know the church and seeing what's going on. And he then goes across to Tarsus, which isn't that far away from Antioch, and says, Paul, can you come and come with me to, to Antioch and give me a hand? There's quite a lot going on over here. And so Saul joins Barnabas in Antioch. A couple of years later, they're still there. Saul and Barnabas, still leaders of the church in Antioch, are asked by the church to go back to Jerusalem and take some money to help the church in Jerusalem. Antioch's quite a wealthy city. Jerusalem is quite poor. The church in Jerusalem is poor. Remember, it was subject to this incredible purge. So they take the money from Antioch and they go to Jerusalem. And they then come back to Antioch. And coming with them is a guy called John Mark, who's Barnabas' cousin. It's all very natural, is this, isn't it? It's also like a human story. There's nothing, there's nothing sort of airy-fairy about it. It's the everyday sort of grit and grist of life at the time. In AD 48, the church sends Saul, Barnabas and John Mark out on mission. We know it as Paul's first missionary journey. They didn't know it as that. They were just prayed for and off they went, going where God sent them. And they went to Cyprus, Pisidia, Galatia, Pamphylia, Lycaonia, and they're all, apart from Cyprus, they're all regions of what is Turkey, um, the coastal regions of Turkey. And they, can you imagine them sailing across the Mediterranean to Cyprus, then making a shore hop to the Turkish coast, and then working their way around those sites in southern Turkey. John Mark didn't stay with them all the way. After he got back, after they landed, having got from Cyprus, John Mark, for reasons that are not wholly clear, decides to go back to Antioch. And Saul and Barnabas go on on their own. They get back in about AD 50. And it is at that point that James writes his letter. About then. And he writes to all the churches in the area. The message describes it really interestingly... Uh, the message is beginning. I, James, am a slave of God and the Master Jesus and write to all the tribes scattered to kingdom come, he puts it, the way he describes it. Hello, he says. So, some of these churches are very new that James is writing to. It's the earliest document, we think, in the New Testament, this letter, the one that got written first. It predates them, all the Gospels and probably all the letters of Paul. Now, the reason I've taken five minutes to wander out and round that is because when you think about the theme of this morning and how we should approach and use and be blessed by our use of Scripture, and we're exploring that in James's letter, it's important to appreciate that at the time that James was writing, the New Testament didn't exist. None of it had yet been written, let alone assembled into a book that we might call the Bible. The only scripture there was, therefore, is the Jewish scripture. That's what James is referencing when he talks about the word. So you might ask the question, well, does that mean the guidance is irrelevant then? It's a, if, it's, if it's just all about the old stuff. And I think the answer to that is, by no means. But it's very important not to, if you like, read into 
James's words, an understanding that actually wasn't there. He isn't talking about the Gospels. He isn't talking about Paul's letters. He's talking about the word as he knows it. The Jewish world knows it. What we would call the Old Testament. Okay, let's read a bit. Let's go to James' letter, chapter 1, starting at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God deserves. Get rid of all moral filth and evil which is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And it continues, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks in a mirror at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all he does. And from those few lines, I want to draw out six simple, like no-nonsense lessons about how we might use scripture and be blessed by it, just the same as then, 2,000 years ago. So lesson one, take your time. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now we need to remember again that at this time, most people could not read. Learning came by listening. And John is saying, shh. Stop talking. Listen. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't let your inner prejudice lead you to dismiss, dismiss things out of hand. No, no, I don't agree with that. Don't do that. For us, think about when we read. Think about what it is we're reading. Think about what's being said. Think about whether you agree or not. That applies this morning to me. Think about whether you agree with me. Take time to think about it. You might ask yourself some further questions. You might have some sort of inner, inner conversation about stuff. All too often in the world today, what is held up as debate is actually simply an exchange between closed minds. Each party makes prepared statements. They have no intention whatsoever of listening to another point of view. I don't know about you, I sometimes listen to the House of Parliament speeches, and I despair. There isn't what should be a debating chamber where people come to a shared view of what should be done is actually just a place where I say this, you say that, I say this, you say that, and we all go home. What is the point? Take your time. Reflect on things. Lesson two. Keep calm. Keep calm. Very famous poster, isn't it? And there's dozens of variations on it. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I remember Steve saying a few weeks back, prejudice is a great time saver. 
It probably, probably wasn't your quote, I don't, but I don't know where it came from, but it stuck in my mind. But prejudice does something else. It's also extremely good at stirring up our emotions. People who don't want to listen are also very often very angry. They can shout their point of view. Their protests or insults go, go, sort of go straight out. They don't want to reply. They're not listening, again, to what might be being said. So if you want to take things in, settle down. Calm your heart. Calm your spirit. Ask God to help you understand what he wants you to know. Ask yourself as you listen to scripture or read your Bible. Not only what can I learn, but what changes does scripture, is it prompting me to make in my life? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> is there an example in scripture that maybe I could follow in what I've been reading? Are there sins that I need to avoid? Is it pointing at something? Do I feel that nudge? Is there a new truth, a new understanding that I need to trust in? These are all good questions to have in your mind when you read. But to have questions in your mind and sit still and be calm takes time. So give yourself the time. This relates again rather to last week. Be clean. James writes, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. Again, Stephen, this morning. It's so prevalent. But when we know we're in the wrong, or have done something wrong, what's our reaction likely to be? I think we tend to shut down. We tend to be defensive at first. We don't like people indicating, pointing at a truth. We are defensive. And when defences are built up, it's much harder to take in the truth of Scripture. So if you pick up your Bible and you're actually in the wrong place, emotionally, morally, mentally, you've been doing the wrong stuff, you can't just pick this up like some sort of magic book and expect it to speak to you. A good place to start is quietly give those things away to God. Get rid of the wrongs in our life before you sit and read or study. It's a very, very good self-discipline. It's a self-discipline that I speak to myself. I'm not standing here on some sort of pious podium. It's a level floor. This is a truth for me too. So when you're on your own, examine it, your current life. Take some time to reflect. If need be, offer up that prayer of confession and repentance to God. Because you have the sure and certain knowledge that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's from John's first letter, chapter 1, verse 9. His forgiveness is always there without fail and then open your Bible and read and I can assure you 
that having practiced that self-discipline, the book, the word, will speak to you in ways that you weren't expecting. You will hear the word of God. It's like taking wax out of your ears. Lesson four. Receive the word. James writes in verse 21, humbly accept the word planted in you. Now being open to teaching, being teachable if you like, being prepared to accept that scripture has something important to say. For that to happen, you have to make a choice about it. You have to say, I'm going to read it to find out. I'm not going to read it because I have to. I want to know more. You're making a choice to be teachable. And that's essentially an attitude of humility of heart. It doesn't mean a humility of heart to another human being. It means humility of heart to the work of God in your life. Accepting that we don't know everything. We're not always right. There's always things that I can learn. Again, at the time of James's letter, teaching, knowledge, wisdom, truth were passed on person to person. A tutor sitting down, surrounded by his disciples, or his followers, his class, if you like. Now today, we have written materials everywhere. The global wealth of the internet at our fingertips. But it's still true that we have to accept that there's things that we can learn. The word accept in this little translation of the NIV is an interesting word in that in the Greek in which it was written, the word is welcome. We should welcome the opportunity to hear and read. And James also uses the word planted, hence the little picture. It's almost as if the word of God is a seed inside of us. And the Bible, the New Testament and the Old, is full of seeds and sowing in many stories and parables. And in the sower and the seeds, the story of the sower planting seeds in places, we remember that it's only, the seed only really thrived in one place. In a soil that was ready. In a heart that was open and welcoming and searching and ready to receive the word of God. Step five. Nice image, that I'll take that one. I rather like that one. I won't read the writing. Verse 25. The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do so, it says in James. We live in this sort of instant age these days. Fast food, fast cars, instant coffee, high-speed broadband, Google On Demand, instant texting all around the globe. And I don't know about you, but it just seems like it's getting faster and faster. Do you think it's getting faster, or is it me slowing down? just seems like it's getting faster. Information overload. I think that's a 21st century phenomenon. And yet, I think we know less and less about more and more. It's thinning down. We're becoming this sort of soundbite world. Just a little snippet. Just a little, and web, the web itself is designed, it's sort of snippet world. If you, if you read the whole, you know, if you don't get your information onto the first screen, nobody's going to press the scroll bar and read any more. 
So everything gets squashed into this tiny, tiny, tiny little bits of information. And that isn't knowledge. It's just sound bites. We know less and less about more and more. And the world's in our face, literally in that case, the whole time. With TV news, online information, and social media that is almost frenetic. We don't get time to stand off, to pause, to reflect, or review anything. The television world is full of pundits who launch themselves onto the screen and give opinions, and that's all they are, opinions about stuff, even while it's unfolding on the screen behind them. And all it does, very often, is stir up our passions and build barriers to understanding. I want you to think for a moment about any major topic in the news of late. Heated debate characterizes much of the media's reporting, polarizing opinion, stirring up our fears. For example, migration, in particular within Europe, from east to west, or globally, out of Africa, across the Mediterranean. Greenhouse gases, fracking, global warming, nuclear power. Whether UK, the UK should stay in Europe or get out. What do we think about gay marriage? What do we think about assisted suicide? To name just a few of the highly contentious topics that are all around us. How do we approach those things? Do we reflect on it? Do we listen carefully? Do we go away with our thoughts and pray to God about it and read his word and see if it can provide any insight or guidance to us? Or are we driven by the prejudices and the paradigms of the world into taking some sort of immediate, instant, moral high ground and boldly declaring that everyone must accept our view. Which typifies you? How do you do it? What would an outsider, a non-Christian, say of you? Do you listen carefully? Do you consider? Are you... Do you empathise with people's point of view even if you don't agree? Do you pray for people who you really don't agree with at all? But also, do you hold, do you stand your, do you hold your ground? Do you know where you are and why you hold the positions you have? It's hard. This isn't an easy thing to do. James points to a better way in daily life. Look intently continuing to do so, he says. And it applies particularly to God's word. Take time. Let things soak in. We don't, don't treat the Bible like some sort of instant messenger. Maybe read scripture several times over. Maybe say it aloud. Why not read it in several translations, in several versions? After you've read it in several translations, and you still may be having difficulty understanding a passage, why not try and write that passage down in your own words? What do I think it means? 
And as we do these sort of, they, they sound like disciplines or tasks, but they're not, they're, they're part of letting God's words soak in. And understanding will then grow in us. It's, and it's more than head knowledge. Wisdom is about internalizing an understanding, making it part of you. And when you've made it part of you, you won't forget it. It won't be like a sort of text stuck on the wall or on the kitchen cupboard. It becomes part of you. Listening to Brian and Carol, the reason they are so delightful is God is part of them. You bless the socks off me, the pair of you. Even when I can't reach my socks because my back's bad. <laughs> Lesson six. Respond. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And again in verse 25. Not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed by what he does. Ultimately, Bible knowledge, for its own sake, is powerless. That's contentious. But I believe it is so. Knowledge, for its own sake, is powerless. And I think, actually, the Bible knowledge, just taken in for its own sake to become an expert, is probably unhelpful. Knowledge, Paul writes in his letter to Corinthians, chapter 8, he says, puffs up, was the way he talks about it. What is key to knowledge is that it doesn't go in you and stay there, making you fatter and fatter. It flows like a river, in you and out through you, by the person that you are. Who you are and what you do. Paul uses this example of a mirror. Looking in a mirror and forgetting, who, forgetting what you look like as soon as you've gone away. Why do I look in the mirror every morning? Because I do. Um, to remember who I am? No. To think, not too bad, not aging too bad. No, not really. I look in the mirror because I don't want to cut myself when I shave. And I want to make sure my hair isn't standing on end. Because it can do when it gets a bit long. So I look in the mirror and I do something about what I see. If not, why bother? Why bother if you're not going to do something? And this particular emphasis in James's letter, putting faith into practice, if you like, that letter, those few words, caused one of the greatest controversies in the early church. Huge argument. And probably still does, if you look around. In a nutshell, the argument went along these lines. If we're saved by faith, by faith alone, which is a gift from God, well, why does it matter what we do? That's the argument. James, however, isn't arguing that way. He isn't arguing about a faith based upon deeds. Let me read you from the message. which I, read it, I only read it this morning. I thought, oh, that's a really good way of understanding this passage in James. 
So I'm reading James chapter 2, and the, the message doesn't have chap- verses and uh, the like, it just has paragraphs. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags, half-starved, and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. And then walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? And then he continues... I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, that sounds good, you take care of the faith department and I'll handle the works. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, they fit together hand in glove. I think that's a very good understanding of the passage. Hence, the image. Two oars. Faith and works. Otherwise you'll go in circles. Go nowhere. What James is explaining is that true faith, which is this free gift of God, by grace alone, as we were singing, inevitably will reveal itself in the deeds of a person, in the life of a person. Faith which does, no, does not transform our heart is nothing more than religious observance. And I spent a lot of my life doing religious observance. Going through the rituals. Learning the stuff. I had a, I had a, I had a little thing called a catechism. And the intention of a catechism was very good. It was to give you something in your pocket that gave you the foundations of your faith. But it became a weapon, really. It was either a weapon against yourself, because you had to learn it by heart, otherwise you got a smack. Which wasn't a very good way to learn about God. Or it became a weapon in your hand, because you quote it like a weapon at somebody else. It's knowledge for its own sake. So, there's our final lesson. Respond. Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourselves. And it's probably the most important of the six points I'm making this morning. The word um, listen, interestingly, also in Greek, means audit. Check it out. Um, An auditor is simply doing one thing alone. He is merely saying, are you right? Do I agree? Tick, tick, tick. They're not really associated with the thing they're auditing. In fact, there's a distance between, normally in accounting terms, the books and the auditor. There's a gap. So the auditor is standing off the subject, just checking. Let me ask you the question. Do you think sometimes you're a sermon auditor? You come, you listen, you say, yeah, I agree with that. Hmm, 
That's quite a good sermon, really. And then you go away and make no change whatsoever. You've looked in the mirror, gone away. Maybe you take notes and say, yeah, I'll really check this is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still don't make any changes. The heart of being blessed by Scripture, to benefit from it, is to apply it. To put what we've heard, what we read, into practice. And see, the spiritual maturity isn't about knowledge. It's about character. And are you allowing the Word of God, am I allowing the Word of God, to change and shape my character? So, there's our six. Our six little pictures. Take your time. Be calm. Be clean. Be open to receive the Word. Reflect upon it and respond to it. And it is my hope and prayer this morning that we're able to take those relatively simple guidelines, not only in regard to our reading of Scripture, but allowing those lessons to flow out through us into our wider life. The world is materialistic, relativistic, humanistic, atheistic, but it's the world God places us in not here. This place isn't a sort of ghastly accident that we seem to have ended up in. This is where God's put us. This is our place. The verse before the one I started with this morning has these words. Is that going to come up? I think it might. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That's us. Let's go and be his first fruits.